You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Felipe Nevela, who is using Meteor and Node to help build a hosting platform. Felipe, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nick. Happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your platform? Yeah, sure. Like my name is Felipe Nevola and I'm from Brazil, but right now I'm speaking from New York. And I was a Java developer like for many years, like maybe more than 10 years. And in the last five years or so, I am using like JavaScript full time and also working with Meteor a lot. So this is a little bit about me. Meteor is a JavaScript platform. And today we are here to talk about the hosting platform that we have, that we also created this hosting platform using Meteor. But this, but this hosting platform is, is targeting like Meteor apps. So we are going to hear a lot about Meteor here, but the idea is to explain like this hosting platform to you. Okay. Yeah, there's some serious Meteor inception going on here. Like Meteor was created like 10 years ago almost, and I'm using Meteor for like 80 years. But now I am running the company. I am the CEO of Meteor. And my, but Meteor was acquired like two years ago by Tiny Capital. So I, I joined Meteor after the acquisition. Before, Meteor was created by the same team that created Apollo GraphQL. So it was the same team and they decided to work more in Apollo. So they decided to sell Meteor to Tiny Capital. That, that's when I joined the picture in terms of working for Meteor. But before I was already using Meteor for many years. So when it comes to building out this whole hosting platform, do you want to maybe just give us like a high level overview of maybe how it works, like on the back end and the front end? Yes. Uh, first, like the let's explain a little bit the back end. So when we talk about hosting, like we need we need to do a few tasks, and the way that we perform this task is using like Go services. So we also use Go. So we have a few services, and I can explain the main services here. Like the first one that you need to imagine in a host platform is a proxy layer because you need to receive the request and send this request to the right application, right? So that's the first layer, and it's a service written in Go. And we also have another layer that we call scheduler because when uh, a user make a new deploy, for example, we need to schedule like for the tasks, the containers to be replaced for the new version. So that's a scheduler component that is orchestrating how the app works because we have many apps. It's kind of different when you're building just like your app because in the hosting side, we, also, we always have like thousands of apps. So you need to orchestrate all these apps together to run in the clusters that we have with AWS. So these are basically like the two main components there, but of course you have many others, but these are the two main ones, one for orchestrate the app, the apps and the other to receive the requests. So that's the backend with Go. And we also have the second part that is what the user sees, like the user does, don't see anything that is like working in Go directly. They see what is what was written in JavaScript, Node.js in Meteor. And that is a dashboard where you can like change some settings. You can see some charts in real time. You can see the number of connections that you have, how your CPU is behaving, how your memory is behaving. So this is the other side with Meteor, Node.js and JavaScript. And that's basically the two parts that we have. Okay. Yeah, this is going to be definitely a fun one to dive into the details. But before we get to the tech side, do you want to just go over some basic things around like how this application come, came to existence? Like, for example, are you actively the only person developing the backend or do you have like a team around it? 
Now we have a team that you call like the core team of Meteor. It's a shared team between like the open source and the cloud part. The cloud is the way that you call the services that we provide. And it was, I believe, like natural to have like a way to host in Meteor apps because Meteor is when you build a Meteor app, in the end, it's a Node.js app in the server and a JavaScript in the client. But as usually the users are using the same packages when they are developing Meteor apps, like they are usually using a lot of web sockets and so on. So I think it was natural to create a hosting platform to kind of host these apps in a specific way because we know the needs of these users. So that was kind of the idea. You can host Meteor apps in other places. You can host your own Meteor app using AWS. You can run in other servers that supports Node. But we believe, of course, our platform is the best way to host Meteor apps because it was designed to Meteor apps in mind. So we have like a connections a panel that usually the others don't have because usually people don't use WebSockets a lot. So have like a connections where you can track your WebSockets all the time. So this is just a small detail, but we have a lot of details specifically for Meteor applications. Awesome. So when it came to developing out this platform, was it something where it's like maybe you had some client work or contract work where you were just setting up similar types of servers for different clients. And then eventually you were like, you know what, there's like a lot of common ground here. Let's just make like a platform out of it. Yeah, just to be clear, like I was not here when Galaxy was started. Galaxy was the name of the product. Now we call it more like Meteor Cloud, but it was a client. So I was also creating my own way to host Meteor apps because before 2015, I believe, we didn't have like any way to host Meteor like officially like we have today. So before that, I was working with Meteor already. So I had to create my own service. I had to create my own way to auto-scaling my service and everything. So it was a lot of work. And in the same time, the team that was working with Meteor in the time, they were creating a solution for this because the community was asking for a solution to host Meteor apps. So this is where the idea started because we have a lot of people using Meteor and still do. And so these people, they need a, a place that are thinking about Meteor all the time. So that this is kind of where the, the project started. Okay. Yeah, it's awesome to hear. If you don't mind sharing, like how many folks are using your platform at the moment, or at least like a rough estimate, maybe? Yeah, we have around like a few thousand apps. Like I don't have the actual number here, but uh, definitely more like than two, three thousand apps. And we have like millions of connections like every day. So we have like a, a huge uh, application running in our site. Yeah, sorry, but I have like a lot of clusters. So some clients, they have private clusters. We also have clusters that everybody can use. We also have like free app, free app deploy. So if you're just like trying Meteor or if you have like a very small project, you can deploy with us for free. So I have a lot of different options and different clusters to run different profiles of clients. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a really cool setup. I've always, always, I was always interested about hear, hearing how different SaaS apps deal with, you know, divvying up their resources for the server side, because uh, when it comes to like setting up an individual cluster for a specific client, is that like reserved for people like on your enterprise plan or do you kind of just do it based on just maybe the load of the client, not so much the plan? Yeah, that's more for enterprise clients because usually like or they need to scale really quickly or they need to like scale and later down scale really fast. And that would affect other clients in the same cluster because we are going to add or remove a lot of machines in the same time. So usually that's the case where people migrate to a private cluster, but it's not like you can go to the website and just like, oh, I want to have a new private cluster right now. Like you need to talk to us. So you need to understand your needs. It's kind of a custom made plan, but you also have like the essentials and professionals where you can just 
like send one command and deploy your app and you're ready to go. You put your credit card if you're not using the free plan and you can use our features without talk to us at all. So it's really a SaaS business. Nice. So for those regular signups, like non-enterprise then, as soon as someone fills out the billing information, they set up their project or whatever, is it just like basically ready to go within a couple of minutes? Yeah, yeah. It's basically the time your app is going to need to build itself. Like right now, we don't have a way for you to deploy from GitHub, but that's going to be released really soon. So you don't need to, to run any command. But right now you need to run Meteor Deploy and you put your host name there and it's going to connect with your Meteor account and everything is going to happen in a matter of minutes. Like if your app is small, probably like five to 10 minutes, your app is going to be live with SSL, with everything ready for you. Very cool. Yeah, I can't wait to dive into the details about that one. But before we get there, when it comes to building out that backend in Go, do you want to go over your motivation for choosing Go, like over potentially maybe even Node just to have JavaScript on the front and the backend? Yeah, I think the idea here is like, we need to do a lot of things in parallel. Like if you think about a proxy, like you're going to receive thousands of connections. And I don't think, maybe people are doing this in Node.js as well, but I don't think this is the best choice. Because I believe you want to like to have a multi-thread architecture behind it to handle like multiple requests. And in our backend, we have a lot of this idea. Like we need, we have, for example, I might image builder that is building the apps to send to to AWS. So we can't build just one app at a time. Like Node.js, you usually think about like one in each container at least. So I think Go is better for this because it has a better performance in terms of handling like multiple tasks in the same time. Like we know it's not exactly the same time, like the CPU is always select what you do, but at least the language supports like multi-thread by default. So you don't need to create a lot of crazy stuff. Like with Node today, you can create like service, you can create workers and thread workers, but I believe Go is better when you need to handle a lot of things in parallel, like we do in the backend of it. Okay. So is that backend mostly just like an API backend that the front end talks to or potentially other customers through like a CLI app or something? No, that's actually like not a, the, the backend is just what is making the hosting to work behind the scenes. Like the users, they don't interact with backend at all. Like the backend are just services that are running there all the time and they are going to get the request, send it to the, the appropriate container or they are going to renew your certificates. But we communicate with our backend using the database. We use MongoDB. So the backend is tracking our database. So when the user makes a change in the UI, we just write this change to the database and you have the Go code like tracking the the database to react to the change. But we also have an API, but the API itself that we provide for our clients, it's just using Node.js and GraphQL. So we are not using like the, the Go directly in the, in the API. But of course, when you call our API, for example, to increase your, the number of containers, we are going to write this to our database and our backend is going to track this change and is going to react to this change, adding more containers to you. So it's kind of not, not a direct access, but of course, as a user, you are interacting with the backend, but using the API or using our dashboard and both are written using Node.js. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Quite a few moving parts there for sure. But when it comes to that web dashboard, then in terms of making backend interactions, you said it just goes straight to MongoDB then? There is no Go service in the backend or even like a node service in the backend dealing with that? Yes, like when you, let, let the simple action that you can do, like when you, you see your app and let's suppose like a lot of users are connected to your app and you just release your app, like you are not expecting this because if you are expecting this, you can have auto scaling enabled, but let's suppose you don't have auto scaling enabled. 
So you click in the container button to add a new container. So basically it's going to add one more container running your, the same code for your application. Like you can do this with one click and what happens in the backend part. So when you click to increment the container, it's going to change the desired container number that you have in the MongoDB to two instead of one. So we have a Go code that's called scheduler that is always try to schedule new tasks because we use AWS ECS that is a cluster where you can allocate a lot of tasks. So we have this scheduler that is looking, okay, this app, it has one task running, but it wants to have two tasks running. This is really fast, okay, but I'm just explaining here like step by step. So it says, oh, there is a difference here. So it creates a plan. Like where should I allocate the next task? Because we also try to balance the app across availability zones. We do a lot of work behind the scenes. So it's okay, it's just one task, but it wants to have two tasks. So I'm going to send a new task to another, to the cluster in AWS. So it adds the other task there. And so AWS is going to deploy this task to ECS, is going to start this container. And we have a log page where you can see all these logs going on, like in real time. And you have, you have now two containers. And our load balancer knows about this new container, so it's going to direct the new request for this container to balance this connection across all the containers that you have. And that's basically how it works. Like you click in a button and then we change the database and then the Go services start to react to this change. Okay. And when it comes to that load balancer, are you using like the application load balancer on AWS or do you also have like routing handled with a Go service internally? Yeah, we use the load balancer on AWS, but the load balancer doesn't go straight to the apps. The load balancer is going straight to our proxy layer. So we use the load balancer, but we have a proxy layer between the apps and the load balancer. And this proxy knows like what is that? Because you can imagine like we just have like a host name, okay, for the request. So you need to check in our database if this host name is hosted with us, otherwise we return an error, like this, this host name is not here. And after that, you need to understand which app is this. So you get like the app ID and the data about the app, and then we send it to the right application. And when you're going to send it to the right application, we also need to know what container we're going to send. Like we have clients that run thousands of containers. So we need to select what is the container that has like less load so you can send there and the connection is going to be fine. And so after all these analysis, you are going to send the, the connection, but this is really fast because you have everything in cache. So we are not going to check the database, like while the connection is coming, but that's the idea. Like you need to select the app and later you need to select the container. Okay. And that proxy service, is that just a Go service or are you using something like HE proxy or Nginx? No, it's just a Go service. It's like custom made because Meteor is kind of different in this way as we use WebSockets a lot. So we have a lot of custom code there to handle that. For example, like you have a custom stick section. So the same connection can go to the same container all the time because usually Meteor applications, they keep the state of the subscriptions in the server. So it's good to connect to the same container all the time. Of course, you can change containers and that happens, for example, in the deploy. When you deploy, all your containers going to change and your client is not going to be affected. But the container needs to like refetch the data to to reinitialize the state of the subscription. So it's better to to keep going to the same container for the same user. So these are the cases that you try to handle. And that's why you have like a custom proxy because Nginx or other services, they are we're not going to understand these details about Meteor 
because we inject some like cookies to identify the container and so on. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And for that Go proxy service, do you use a specific like Go web framework or like a routing library for that one, like Mux or something else? No, we use like Go standard libraries, like Go HTTP, Go like just the standard Go, and we we have everything from scratch there. We don't have like any big library that is supporting our case. You're just using standard Go network libraries to implement our layers on top of it. Okay. Yeah, I always find that super interesting. So I don't write Go code on a regular basis, but every guest that I've had on who is using Go, it seems to be a very strong preference to use the standard library as much as possible and only really reach for third-party dependencies when like you absolutely need to. Do you find that to be the case even for the other services that you've built or do you kind of pull in some useful third-party dependencies? Yeah, I believe this is also because Go didn't have a very good module system until I think version 13. I think it's 1.13. Uh, it was kind of weird the way to import like dependencies. Maybe that's also a factor that you prefer to just write your own code because it's not that clear these modules. But in general, like we, we need to write our own code because we have our own proxy because we have special needs. So usually it's not enough to just use something from, from the community because it's not exactly what you want. So that's usually what you would do. Like we have also a custom protection layer that you try to prevent DOS attacks, for example. So as you really understand Meteor apps, we have this advantage to try to analyze the request and see if this is a legit request or if it's not. So I think these kind of details, if you just delegate to a library, it was not going to be possible to do it. But of course, in other parts of the system, we use a lot of libraries. I think the proxy is a, is a special part here. Oh, that's really cool to see, especially with having that uh, DDoS protection built into the proxy. Now, in terms of like other maybe features that the proxy has, I'm curious about this one. Like, Let's say that someone were to deploy a new version of their app and maybe you're on, I don't know, some limited plan or something like that. And well, actually, before I even ask that, let me ask you, is there any differences between like the free plan and paid plans in terms of like downtime? Because I know with like Heroku, there are like some subtle differences. Yes, we have some difference because of course you are providing for free and our community is huge. So it was, it's going to be a lot of money if you run the servers all the time. So what do you do for free plans is that you don't run the app all the time because the idea of free plans is to like to have demos, to have like hobby projects, not like production ready applications. So we limit the size of container. So it's a really small container that you call tiny. We also limit the number of containers. So a free app can only run one container. And we also limit like the uptime. So if your app is not receiving requests, you are going to turn it off your app after 30 minutes. Like if you are requesting, receiving requests all the time, your app is going to run forever. But if you are not, you are going to turn it off your app after 30 minutes without requests. Okay, so very similar to how Heroku works as well, where you kind of have that, I don't know, it's like a sketchy thing, right? And I'm curious if you had to deal with this at the platform level. Like, do you find folks trying to like game the system where maybe they just like, you know, send an HTTP request to their server every minute or something just to keep it alive? Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny because we had a case where a guy like opened a ticket and we respond to our tickets like really fast and we reply to everybody, even if they're using the free plan. And the guy was kind of complaining about some things that make no sense to us. And later we were analyzing the account and then you saw they are using like a free app. And that was why he was hitting some limitations, but it was clear that was like a production app. And that's, of course, it's not possible because you are going to shut down your app. And if you're a production app, you don't want to wait a few seconds to the code starts to happen. So that makes no sense. 
but I think he was trying to trick the system somehow. Probably he was sending requests like every five minutes. I'm not sure what he was doing, but he was trying somehow to to have all the features. But that's not possible because we we have the intention to limit these free services because otherwise it's going to be really expensive for us. But I think people are trying to to work around it. But I don't think it's worth it because in the end we are going to find out, and you can even like cancel the account. So I don't think it's a good way to proceed, but we need to handle that. And we are expecting, to be honest, more of that. And you just had one case, at least that you know of, right? Maybe people are doing it and you don't realize it, but we don't just know about one case that this, this happened. Yeah, it's always fun playing that cat and mouse game where you try to figure out who's doing something wrong and then you prevent it, but you prevent it in a way where they don't know that it's being prevented, kind of like <laughs> shadow banning someone on a forum or something. <laughs> but yeah, going back to like that proxy question, yeah, I was curious, like, is that same proxy serving all the traffic for the free folks as well as anyone on like a regular plan and like an well maybe not an enterprise plan do they have their own proxy setup or how does that how does that work yeah they they like except the enterprise they are basically sharing the same proxy but like the difference here is when you have a free app and if you send a request but the app is not running because we shut it off because they are not receiving requests in the last 30 minutes what do you do we have like a static app that was also built with Meteor that's going to be there for a few seconds, say, oh, this app is using like a special layer and it's going to be ready in a couple of seconds. So I have like this special landing page and that's why it's so useful to have a custom proc so you can understand this request and you can deliver something different while the app is loading. And inside of this like static application that you deliver to the client, we have like a loop to check, oh, the app is ready now, the app is ready now. And so when the app is ready, you just refresh the page and you see the actual app. So that's like a, a cool feature that you could implement because you have a custom proxy. So you could customize what to respond in a specific case. And that's basically the same like for DOS protection. Like when you identify a request that's weird that you want to protect, you can just like block this request. So it's very, very helpful for our apps because in this case, the request is not going to the container, you know? Like the apps, they are not going to be affected at all. Of course, sometimes you can detect it. That is a DOS attack. But if you detect it, the container of our clients, they are not going to receive the request in any way. So they are not going to be affected in any way, just our proxies. But we have a lot of, we have like a lot of proxies there. So they usually can handle a lot of requests. So usually after we implement this layer, we didn't have more problems with DOS attacks. But of course, you know, DOS attacks are re kind of impossible. <laughs> To prevent 100%. So if people have a lot of money to have a lot of servers and a lot of ways to attack you, they are going to attack you anyway. But you try to to help as much as possible with this custom layer. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it's a really cool feature to have where I guess your proxy will just try to make a connection to the backend. If that fails, then you just load your default backend or something like that, right? For the maintenance page or whatever page you're showing temporarily. Yeah, we, we have a custom error. So the client know that we are blocking the request. Like it's not an error. We are blocking on purpose. So they, they know this because we have like the support page and everything. So I think we, we return 429 is the error name. So we are blocking the request. And also they have a page if they are on professional plan. They have a page where they can see like the request that we are blocking. And they can even unblock. Like we already had a case where like a lot of people in the same company we're using like just one like VPN. So while the requests are coming from the same IP and our proxy layer detect this as a DOS attack, but it was not, it was a legit request. So the client itself could go to this page and just unblock this IP and this, the, the list that you showed there. So he could have the access again. 
So this is kind of the layers that we provide. And you can also customize how many requests you want to receive from the same IP. So we have a few rules in the professional plane that you can customize as you wish. Nice. Do you find that a lot of folks are using those features in their day to day? I don't think they are like customizing a lot in the day to day, but it, it's really helpful because before you had that, in some cases we had some apps with problems with DOS attack. And after we released this feature, it's like very rare now. Like usually because people have more control, you know, because before it was like a black box. You just receive the request and you don't have much to do because even if you try to deny the request in your container, but the connection is already there, you know? So if you receive like 1000 connections, even if you, in the app layer, you want to just to decline, but you are going to deny like 1000 requests in the same second. So it's going to cause a lot of load. And in the proxy, they can see this, this request coming and they can block it, they can customize. So they don't change very often, but usually when they have this first problem, they can solve in a matter of minutes. And before they need to open a ticket, they need to wait for us to analyze the request. So now we have better tools for our analysis as well, because we, we have all these requests uh, logged and explained for you. So you can also prevent easily. So we have better ways to handle this now. And it's, it's really helpful because you can imagine like as a hosting provider, it's kind of scary when you are like receiving a lot of requests and you don't have very good tools to like, okay, I want to block this type of request right now. So it's a lot better for us in our support side as well. Yeah, for sure. Because it's interesting because, yeah, you're a hosting platform. It's like you have clients, but then every single one of your clients also is serving their own clients. Like they all have sites of their own. So it's like you're responsible for the customers of your customer. Big responsibilities. Yeah. And if you don't do this right, you can lose our clients and our clients can lose their clients. So it's it's a big problem. Yeah, for sure. Now, just on the topic of like protection, protection against like DDoS attacks or whatever, do you have anything sitting sitting in front of your infrastructure at the cloud level, like AWS, or maybe just using something like Cloudflare? No, we don't use Cloudflare ourselves, but we use like AWS standard. Uh, they have a firewall, like in the network layer, like the default one. But like our clients, they can also use like uh, Cloudflare or other options because in Meteor. You can serve your like your bundle and other things from a CDN. So in some cases, the big clients usually they have like CDNs and they have other protection layers in their domain, in their host name. So usually the clients need to set up extra layers of protection if they want. Okay. So now just jumping gears a little bit, let's talk a little bit about like the individual servers that you have running on your platform to make all of this work. Like we can't, you know, we don't have enough time to go into the details about all of them, but like how many actual services do you think you have? I would say about 80, but I think like the ones that are like the main services that we could talk about, like maybe four, like I, and I can explain them to you. I think we should start maybe with the image builder. Do you want to, to hear about like, what is a image builder does? Sure. So like the image builder is the one when you send a deploy to Meteor. So Meteor needs to create a Docker image for you, right? So Meteor, we have like a default Docker image that you can also customize. And if you customize, you are going to put your app inside your custom Docker image. If you don't customize, you are going to get our like custom uh, our default Docker image and put your app inside. And so with this new image, with your app inside the Docker container, you can save to a task. So basically that's what the image builder does. It creates the image, putting your app inside the default or the custom Docker image that we have. So we have uh, our private Docker registry. So we send this image to our custom Docker registry and you tell AWS CCS, okay, now you need to deploy this task. 
with this image, with this configuration. So the AWS cluster does the rest for, for us. Okay. And when it comes to that private registry, is that using ECR on AWS or something else? Yeah, we are using, like we actually, I think it's custom. Like we, we have a custom registry. I don't remember the component that we are using there, to be honest, sorry. But I think it's, it's like custom made. Just, it's a very simple, it's basically storing the image on S3 and it's going to retrieve the image from S3. So it's a pretty standard API to just fetch Docker images. Okay. And, and for this server separation, you know, like the four main ones, do you have different team members all working on each individual, individual service or just people just kind of just like bounce around and they know like the whole system? Yeah, we are like, we are learning everything, but now we have a very good understanding of everything because a meteor was acquired like two years ago. So we had like the first year was kind of a learning process, but now I think we, we get almost everything. And usually our team members, they prefer to know a little bit about everything. So when we are going to create, for example, we are going to create this, we are called calling push to deploy, the way to just push a commit and you deploy the app for you. So we usually select like a few members to work in this feature, but they like to work like everywhere. So they work a little bit in the dashboard. They work a little bit in the Go service. Of course, sometimes people are tired. Like, I don't want to work with Go anymore. So they are going to work more with Node.js and JavaScript. But usually they, they like to work everywhere because I prefer also to, to work in dif with different technologies. Like I, I, I like this, but a few people, they prefer like more front end. So depends of each individual in our team. Right. Yeah. I've always been a fan of jumping around. That's why I do. I like to do contract work where it's like, yeah, new project all, all the time. Otherwise I get, I don't want to say bored, but maybe a little bored. A little bored. <laughs> yeah, I get it. <laughs> like I can't work like in exactly the same thing, like for many years, like that's impossible for me. Maybe one year, like 80 months is okay. But if I'm working exactly doing like the same job, the same type of features, like all the time, I, I'm going to, to get really, really bored. Yeah, for sure. Now, do you have all of these services or most of them also split up as their own individual Git repos that you can individually deploy? Yeah, we have basically, I'm trying to think here, but I think we have basically four or five repos. Like I'm a big fan of mono repos, but in this case, it's kind of impossible because like we have Go, Node.js, JavaScript, static pages, Terraform configurations. Like we have so many different things that's impossible to have in a single mono repo. So we have, I would say like four mono repos that maybe makes no sense, like four mono repos. But I think we have like this because the Go services, they are in the same repo, for example. So it's like a mono repo because they also share some parts of the codes, like the database access. We just have like one layer that they share across the services. But when you build the service, each service is, is an individual piece. So you can create like different executables and each service has it, its own. So you attach these to a specific image when you deploy the services. So, but they are organized like we have this repository for the services. We have another one for Terraform configurations. That is how we like apply chains to our infrastructure. And we also have another one for the dashboard, for the API and for the billing system. So I think we have made basically like three main repos here. Okay. Yeah, definitely a lot going on. Also super curious to hear how you can have a mono repo of Go services, like each individual service being in that mono repo, but do you have things set up then to where you can individually deploy each one of those binaries as they get rebuilt? Like, I'm curious as how that all happens. Is that through like CI or like a manual process? Yeah, we have a system that was created by the old team that they call like Publish binary, it's like this name, where we can just create an image 
like, uh, sorry, uh, a binary from the source and you can deploy to S3. You're not deploying, like you are sending to S3. And in Terraform, we have a way, we have a custom plugin that was written by the previous team that can fetch this binary from the S3 because we have like a hash that is generated when you create this new binary. Then you just replace this binary, this hash binary in the Terraform configuration. And then we have this custom plugin when you, I don't know if you know Terraform, but in Terraform, when you want to apply chains, you run like Terraform apply. And this apply is going to use the custom Terraform plugin to fetch the new binary and put inside the machine to send to, to, to AWS. So it's like a custom made process to create new binaries, publish to S3, and then you use the hash and you copy and paste to the Terraform configuration. And it's going to just replace uh, in the AWS environment. Okay. And then I guess in that case, like I do know Terraform, I never developed like a custom plugin, but if that hash doesn't change, meaning like a new binary wasn't created that was different, then that's like a no-op in that case, right? Like if there's four services in that monorepo, if only one of them changes, only one of them will get deployed? Yes, exactly. Exactly what happens. So when Terraform analyzes our our configuration, it's like, oh, just the proxy was changed. So I'm going to just replace the proxy launch configuration. And that's exactly what happens. Okay, awesome. And, and that builder service, the Go one, is that also mostly just using custom code that you've written in-house, like not so many, too many libraries? Yes, like this this one that is communicating with Terraform and sending to S3, like they are really simple, just a few lines of code, like they're basically just fetching and sending data to S3. So it's not like that complex, but it's custom as well. Okay. Now you mentioned there's about four main services that you'd like to talk about. Uh, what's the second one on the list here? Yeah, the, I think the first one was proxy, so we already covered that. The scheduler, uh, we can explain a little bit, and we already talked about the image builder. And the last one, we can talk about the certificate, the certificates that regenerate. But let's talk about the scheduler a little bit more, because I think the scheduler is like the magic behind our, our host, because you need to imagine that we have like thousands of app, apps, like we have a few hundred of machines, and you have a few clusters. So the scheduler is like the smart guy that is trying to plan ahead. Like, what am I going to do with this, these containers? What am I going to do with these machines? Let's suppose like you need to, to update Ubuntu. Like, so we need to update Ubuntu in all of our machines. So the scheduler is responsible for understanding like which machines he needs to shut down and how he can shut down these machines because we, we can't have downtimes for our apps. So it's going to start to create new machines first. So we start a process that's called draining. We start to remove a few containers from the old machines and start to apply to the new machine. But you also need to be careful because you can't like remove all the containers from the same app, otherwise the app will be down. So we have this rollout process to like apply chains and to change configurations. And we also have the same process in the app side because the user itself can scale up or down a lot of containers. So also maybe you need to create new machines or you need to remove machines because of a user action. And the scheduler is like this planner that's always trying to synchronize like the state with AWS servers and our database. That's basically what the user is making changes to. So it's a very complex service, but it's running like all the time and it's trying to understand what's going on. So it's really nice to see this in action because like you just change a field in the database and you, you see new ideas come up from the scheduler, he's always trying to optimize and to put the tasks in the correct place. 
Yeah, that definitely sounds like a, a very complex piece of machinery. I mean, it's software, but not literally a machine, but you know what I mean. <laughs> but yeah, because something like ECS kind of, like you would think from at least my point of view, there is a scheduler component to that where like you can kind of just, you know, spin up your containers on a cluster and it'll just figure out where that needs to go. But you've developed like your own scheduler on top of that to do like extra stuff, I guess, that needs to be done. And do you... Like, I'm trying to figure out, like, where does ECS fit into this? Like, I understand it's, like, where your containers are running, but do you just not use any scheduling components of it? Exactly. Like, again, as we have, like, special needs and we want to, like, roll out the containers chains and everything in a very nice way for our clients. So we created a scheduler and you don't use the scheduler for ECS. So basically, the ECS is just an executor. Like, you just send the tasks and you say, okay, I want this task in this specific machine. So we are saying everything to ECS. And the ECS is just starting the task. He's not making any decisions. And also when you want to remove a task from the, from the machine, we are also going to say, I want to remove this very specific task from the machine. So the ECS is just executing whatever you send. And you have a Go implementation that calls uh, ECS API. So we send the data to ECS all the time. And we also ask the data to understand like the reality, because that's always happening in the scheduler. It's always comparing what is actually there and what you want to be there. So we have these two words that you need to synchronize all the time. Right. And if you had to guess here, like how big do you think that scheduler app is in terms of like Go modules or like lines of code or whatever? Because it sounds like it's pretty beefy. So the scheduler is about like 3000 lines of code. So it's not like a small piece of software, but it's not like also huge. And the main part of this code is, is actually what I said about the plane, like it's try you have a, like many criteria to make decisions. So it's try to analyze all the criteria and using a lot of algorithms to try to identify the best opportunity for, for us. Right. Yeah, 3K lines of code, not that big. Like in my mind, I was envisioning it to be much larger. And I know like lines of code is not the best way to measure like complexity or whatever, but it's kind of cool just to give like a high level overview of like, this thing is approachable. It's not, you know, something that took like five years to make and it's now like 70,000 lines of code. Yeah, I think the the problem the, the size is not the problem here. Like the the challenge is the is the problem itself, you know, because you have many variables and you need to to try to make the right decision. But it's but it's doable. Like the code is not the big problem. I think the big problem is the idea. So we have kind of a lot yeah. of options. So the schedule is trying to choose what's the best option. Like should I try to scale down this availability zone? Should I try to scale down this, this task? Should I try to scale up this other thing? So there are many options there and it's just trying to choose the best option based on a, a lot of different criteria. Right. So how does that end up working in terms of like implementation wise? Like you don't need to go into the gory, gory details, but is it kind of just like running a loop, like sleeping every second or some interval and then like doing some if conditions to see if, okay, maybe, maybe I need to do that or do this instead? Yeah, you're really good in guessing <laughs> because it's exactly like this. Like we have a loop that's running forever and it runs like all the time uh, as fast as possible. And it's try to first it tries to refresh the cache to see what is what is going on on AWS side, because we always need to have this uh, state there. And then we have this we call planner. So we have a planner that is going to check the database side and it starts to create the new tasks. And it's going to send a lot of tasks on each run. So it's basically the idea of like check everything that's going on, check the state in the database, create these GIFs, and then send these GIFs to be applied and, and do it again and do it again. And some, some parts we don't run all the time, 
Like we don't try to shut down machines all the time. We have like intervals because we don't want to shut down a lot of machines because that could cause a lot of reconnections and everything. So we have a, a few parts that we avoid to run all the time, but basically it's try to reconcile the data as much as possible. But it's basically like a loop trying to make decisions on each on each iteration. Okay. And database wise there, that's also using the same Mongo database, right? No, we, like we, for the main parts is using like Mongo, but like as we have uh, the cache, as I said, we use like Elastic Cache on AWS. We also use like DynamoDB. That is another part that I, I didn't mention a lot, but we have in the dashboard for the user, you can see like in real time, the CPU for every container and you have thousands of containers. You can see the memory, you can see the connections. So we do this using DynamoDB. We have a service that we call Collector that is using the Docker API to collect metrics from our containers all the time. And this collector is aggregating these metrics and send it to DynamoDB. So in DynamoDB, we have a lot of series of data with timestamps and in the numbers. And in the Node.js side, in Meteor side, we are getting this data from DynamoDB and display for the user in a nice graph. So they can see this data coming over time in real time. But it's like a lot of pieces here. Again, like you have the Docker API, you have the collector, we have the aggregator, then the aggregator sends it to DynamoDB, and then you consume it from DynamoDB to be able to provide some dashboards for the user. Okay. And when it comes to updating that dashboard, I'm guessing it's over like a WebSocket connection. Yeah. Yeah. It's used like a WebSocket connection. I, I believe this part, because we have a mix there, we have a few GraphQL endpoints, and we also have Meteor DDP. DDP is the Meteor protocol to transfer data that's very effective for this kind of data. So we have a mix there. In some cases, you use GraphQL because it's easier to define what you're going to get. And in some cases, you use Meteor DDP because it's it's better in general. And it's usually faster to write like DDP code than GraphQL code. Okay. Yeah, I have to admit, I have not written any Meteor apps firsthand. I remember when it was first announced, what, whenever that was, like 10 years ago, I suppose, yeah. quite some time ago. But I love, yeah, I love the idea that it was just like, you can build these reactive apps on the front end and the back end and share some good stuff. But like with this, taking the DynamoDB data back to the front end, is that like literally just like a trigger happens on DynamoDB and it sends an event over and the Meteor front end over a WebSocket connection just reacts to that thing happening over a specific channel? Or is there like a middleman service that intercepts the database stuff? Yeah, for the case of DynamoDB is a little bit different because Meteor, it doesn't work like by default with DynamoDB, usually Meteor Reactive data, it comes from MongoDB. So as in this case, you have a lot of data and you need to aggregate this data beforehand. So in DynamoDB, you, you need to imagine like the graph is already kind of ready in the DynamoDB. You just ask like the interval that you want. Okay, I want to see the data for the last five minutes. And you have like a few series there that you aggregate in different ways. So it's a very, it's hard, like everything together is not easy to accomplish. But in the final part, when you just get the data, you need to imagine that I'm just asking like a few data, like a few data points, and I just put in the chart. So in this specific part, we are not using Meteor at all. We are just asking the data for DynamoDB, and we just have a, a layer in the server to send this data to the client. So it's a very simple code, actually. Like you just, oh, give me like 10 points of data for the five minute series. And then we return this to the client and we render the graph. And in Meteor, uh, if I would say like about Meteor, Meteor would be more a publication case where, for example, I have the activities listing the right on Galaxy. 
So you can list if you have a new deploy, if you have a change in your configurations, if you have a container that is unhealthy. So it's more like a mature publication system. So we can just publish the data about uh, activities collection and everything that goes to this collection, mature is detect auto, is going to detect automatically and publish to the client. So mature have in the backend something that's called live query. So when you create a publication, this live query is going to be there watching for a specific MongoDB cursor. And every time there is a change that is affecting this MongoDB cursor, Mitchell is going to change this data to the client automatically for you. So it's kind of a different way because of the other part we are using Dynamo and the data is kind of ready in DynamoDB. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I was wondering in my mind, like if that was just sending over in real time every single event over the wire or over a WebSocket connection or whatever, that would have been like a ridiculous amount of connections, you know, like tens of thousands, I guess, in like a couple of seconds, you know, across all of your clients. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Across all the clients for sure. And Mitchell is kind of smart as well, because like we just have one WebSocket connection for a client. And then when Mitchell sends the data using the DGP protocol, it's just sending like the GIF. So for this example, like I've say about the list of activities, but Mitchell is not going to send the activities all the time, just the chains. So if you add one activity, Mitchell is probably going to send like four fields. And then after a few seconds, more four fields. But of course, in the case of the graph, that's going to send data all the time because the CPU is changing all the time, the memory is changing all the time. I don't think that would be uh, the best solution because you need to aggregate this data first. And then that's the solution that they created at the time using DynamoDB as a middleman to manage the data. And then you just get the data from there. Right. And then also in that you mentioned you're using ElastiCache on AWS. Do you happen to use Redis or Memcache instead? No, we use like Memcache and the AWS implementation of Memcache, but we don't use Redis ourselves, but Meteor applications, they use Redis a lot. When you have like a big application in Meteor, and if you're using a lot of this part that I was explaining, the DDP to change to send the diffs, a nice way to scale a Meteor app is to use a, a Redis instance so Mitchell instead of like reading directly from mongodb we put reds in the middle and we have a package for that so instead of like watching the chains from the mongodb we watch the chains from the redis so it's better in terms of performance but we are not we don't use this specifically in our app but a lot of Mitchell users that are using they are using reds this way to try to save some load in the server and consume the data from redis instead of consuming the data from mongodb Right. And then I guess in that case, you're using Redis's like pub sub features for that one. Yeah. Yeah. You, you are always like publishing the chains to the Redis. Uh, we call, because we have a concept in MongoDB that is called Oplog and Meteor takes advantage of this concept to try to read the log of operations from MongoDB and apply the chains and calculate the diffs and everything. So when you use Redis, you don't use MongoDB Oplog. So we're kind of publishing like the, the operations to the reds and you are consuming from reds instead of consuming from uplog. So that's the way we can replace Mongo, Mongo uplog with reds uplog. These are the name of the packages that you, the Mitchell application is using. Okay. So yeah, let, let, let's go back to what you mentioned before about these four services. And I think the fourth one you mentioned was around registering SSL certificates. Was, was that right? Yes, exactly. We use like Let's Encrypt as everybody's using nowadays. So we have these services that's, that's always checking if your certificates are valid and it's going to renew the certificates for you. And in, in our hosting, you can have as many domains as you want. Like you have some clients that they have white label apps. 
So they have like thousands of domains with us. So the out certificate, we call out certs, the service that's running all the time and checking our certificates. It's always checking if all the certificates are valid and it's going to renew for you automatically. And also when you create a new app, that's going to create a, a new certificate for you. So that's why I said you can just deploy your app. You put your Senemi pointing to our ingress address and your app is going to be ready like in five minutes. So it's really easy to, to deploy a new app to meet you. Very cool. Did you happen to ever run into any rate limiting issues with Let's Encrypt? Yeah, we, we have a few problems, but usually they are like smart enough to to understand what's going on. Like, I think we had a problem one time with limits, but I don't I don't remember exactly what was the solution. But I think they are having some kind of error. And so we are asking a lot of a lot of times without a proper answer. So we start to have like more requests because we are not completing the request correctly. So in this case, I think we run in a in a limit. And the bad part is that you don't have much to do. Like when you achieve the limit, you don't have anything to do. You just need to wait. And I think they even explain that in the website. Like you need to wait now for a for a new period to have the limit again available for you. So there is no solution for that. But the good part is that they they limit by domain. So we don't have a problem because you are asking like for thousands of domains because they are not limiting by our IP. They are just limiting like how many certificates you are asking for a specific domain. So if the process is working fine, we don't have any problems at all. But if it starts to get an error for a specific reason, maybe this is going to, to use all the limit for this specific domain. So that was the only problem that you had in the past. Okay, that's very cool. Yeah, for some reason in my mind, I thought maybe since you were registering them all from your infrastructure, maybe at like using the same account for all of them or whatever, then you would be rate limited there. But yeah, separate domains, I, I guess there wouldn't be any issues as long as like this the process is correct, right? Yes, yes, that, that, that's, that's really good because if it was otherwise, if it was limiting by our IPs or whatever, that would be probably a problem for us. Yeah, that would be basically, I guess, like the scariest thing in the world, right? It's because it's like one little issue there. It could take down everyone. Yes, no, the, the out scheduler, the out certificates are really important for us. And that's also a really important aspect that you said about monitoring. So one thing that's really important for us, and it's kind of different when you are developing an app for a few clients and not like for a, a lot of clients that are going to uh, deploy their apps to be used by a, 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 a ton of clients. So monitoring is really important for us and use Datadog. So we have a lot of monitorings, like everything that you create that is new, we always create already with a lot of monitorings. Like even if you create, we create a feature like last year to auto scale the apps. So we have a concept that you call triggers. So trigger is basically an idea that you can customize when your app is going to add containers or remove containers. For example, I want to add containers if my average of CPU is uh, above 50%. So we, we you put this trigger in the screen and you can hit save. And now we are going to run these triggers all the time for you and check the conditions. And if the conditions match, we are going to apply the change. So we have this feature, but since we created this, we have a lot of monitors because like these triggers, they need to run like every minute. So we have we need to have the monitors in place for everything that you do, because imagine that you configure this trigger. So your app starts to receive a lot of requests and you have like 30 minutes without running the triggers. So our clients can be down for like 30 minutes. So that's not possible. So we have a lot of monitors on 
on Datadog, and these monitors they are going to call our team in PagerDuty. So we are always watching everything, and that's a, a really concern for us. Everything that you create, we need to have like good monitors. So if anything is going wrong, we are going to receive a call from PagerDuty right away. Very cool. And just to be 100% clear, all of that is hands-free from your end customer's point of view, right? Like you just install the Datadog agent on your machines and you handle you know, monitoring and setting up all that or no? Yes, yes. The client, they need, don't need to know anything about it. We, we do everything. We have our dashboards, our monitors. So we don't monitor like the app itself. If you ask me, oh, if the app is providing a lot of like 500 errors, we are not monitoring that because we don't have anything to do. But like if the container is failing or if a lot of requests are failing in the proxy layer, like this kind of stuff, we monitor everything to be sure everything's working all the time. Right. Now, you did mention PagerDuty there. I'm curious when it comes to, you know, running an important hosting service like this, like uptime is of the most important thing, right? So it's like a 24-7 business. Do you happen to do like on-call rotations between all of your developers or do you have like a special apps team just for that? No, like our system is very complex, as you can imagine by these these explanations that I'm doing. So we really need like a, a developer like to handle and to be able to understand. So we don't have like a specific team just for support. Like the developers, they are in a rotation if they need to to act. And and PagerDuty is like I I don't know who created PagerDuty, but I think it's the best tool ever because I never had any problems. Like it always is working and it should work, right? Because it's a really important piece. And we have the rotation and have this integration with Datadog and other systems. We also have status cake to monitor the domains and we have a lot of pieces like to help in this process. And if everything goes wrong, we send to PagerDuty. And so we always have at least one developer on call to handle these this problems. Okay. And this is like a quick aside. I'm always curious about this. When it comes to setting up those on-call rotations, is it like you know, one developer is on for maybe a week or whatever. And do they get extra compensation just for being on call, even if no event happens? No, we have a lot of freedom, like in our company. So like we don't have a limit of day offs. We don't have don't have a lot of rules. So they can basically work the way they prefer. And we don't have a lot of calls, to be honest, because our app is already like almost like seven years old. So they are pretty stable. So we don't receive calls all the time. So we don't have different compensations. Like they are usually like we have the shifts for one week. So every week is a different developer, but they don't make extra money because they don't like, usually they don't do anything. And if they do, they could like take a day off later. So we don't have this different compensation for who is on call. Okay, that makes sense. Now you did mention a couple of different SaaS apps there, right? Using like PagerDuty and Datadog. What about in terms of like maybe sending emails out like password resets or anything on the front end? Yeah, we, we also have this. We have actually two. We have Postmark as our main one, and we use Saint Grid as a fallback. So, for example, on, on Meteor Cloud, when you're going to authenticate, you need to receive a code if you have two-factor authentication enabled. And this code you will send by default using Postmark. And if they fail and you click in the Send Again button, so we use Saint Grid. So I have kind of this fallback approach to avoid people being locked out of their own dashboard. Oh, nice. And is this all like node territory now, or is this still like a Go service on the back end? No, this is, is everything is, is, is a mature application and the mature itself in the server is also Node.js. So it's all Node.js. Basically like the Go is just like the orchestration, like everything that the user uses directly, UI and whatever, it's not going to the Go, never. Okay. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Duh. It's like, that's literally how Meteor works. <laughs> it's like your front end and back end is, is using Node, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Okay. Now we're using like a special Node library to do that fallback to, you know, supporting different uh, mail servers, or is that like custom code that you've written? No, that's a custom code. I think some guy from our team was talking about something that was going to do this fallback automatically, but I never use it. I don't remember the name. Are you using something to do this fallback for you? No, I can't think of one offhand, even in, in like any tech stack. Yeah, no, I don't know. I don't know either, but like we because it's usually like to send an email, it's a very simple code, you know, and you, and you are not really like doing a fallback if there is an error. It's just like if the user clicking the resend, like maybe the provider is kind of slow. So let's use another provider. So that was the idea when you had like these two layers of providers. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And also before you mentioned uh, you have like a billing component of this one as well. Do you want to just quickly maybe go over how that is set up? Like are you using Stripe and is like, is this a separate application or is it part of just the main site, like the main Meteor site? No, the main Meteor site today is a Webflow uh, application. So the marketing is taking care of it. It's not really technical, like they're just using Webflow. Uh, but in the dashboard, the Meteor Cloud, we use basically like React in the front end. We have, of course, it's a Meteor application. So it's running like Node.js in the server. For the payments, you use a system that's called Recurly. It helps us in the way that you can just like you just send the charts, but they are going to create the invoices every month. They are going to try to, to charge again if the first payment failed. They have a few subscriptions features there that we use. Uh, what else? We also have Elasticsearch because we provide a, a, log, a log view. So everything that is happening inside the app, we send these logs in the goal side to Elasticsearch. And in the cloud side, you can see this using the, the Elasticsearch API for Node.js. So we also have Elasticsearch in the mix. And I think it's, yeah, of course, MongoDB everywhere. But I think that's basically how we run the dashboard. Okay. And then for using Recurly, is that something that was already in place before you joined the team there? Like, I'm just curious, what, what made you go down that route of using that versus like Stripe directly? Yeah, I don't know exactly why they choose Recurly. Maybe we're going to migrate later because we'd like to have our our own like subscription system or using Stripe because re recurly they have like a fixed fee and it's kind of expensive for us because they, they charge based on how much you, you bill and you bill a lot. So it's, it's not a cheap, it's not a cheap service for us, but right now it's working. Like the API works great. Like the reports for us are, are not that great, but the APIs are always working. We didn't ever have like downtime problems. So it works, but it's, I don't think it's the best solution for us. So I would decide in a different way, probably using Stripe or using Braintree directly because what Recurly does, Recurly is not really a gateway of payments. It's just like a layer to help you to, to have subscriptions. So in the backend, you are still using Braintree from PayPal, but it's integrated using Recurly. So I think I would go straight to Braintree or Stripe and have the subscriptions there. I don't think we take a lot of advantage from Recurly, but the good news is that like the API, their API is really good and it's always available. So we never had really huge problems with them, but I would prefer to go straight. Maybe it's something that is going, we are going to change next year. Okay. And then for, in terms of like maybe going with Braintree or Stripe, is that because with Braintree you'd want PayPal support or you just want to use it as an alternative to Stripe maybe because better rates or something like that? Yeah, I think we have already a good rate with them, but we analyzed at the time and we decided that Braintree was like the best option if you want to go like straight. But I, I know like Stripe is 
is the state of the art. I already use Stripe in other applications that I had. I think next year we are going to probably like send an email to Stripe and try to see if they have the same rates as Bing Tree. But I, I, I would prefer if you could use Stripe. Uh, but if the, the fees are, are too different, I think there is no, no way to, to go forward. But we are going to analyze this again. Like I think we did a research about this last year in Brain Tree was the best option, but we decided to not migrate this year, so maybe next year. But I really love Stripe. Like I already created a few apps with Stripe and <laughs> everything is perfect. I don't have like anything to say about that. And Brain Tree, I never integrated directly with Brain Tree. So it would be new for me. I'm not sure if it's going to be the same or not. Yeah, it's definitely hard to find faults in Stripe setup in terms of just like using their API and the documentation. Like it always seems like it's basically like world-class. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, I can't compare it though with Braintree because yeah, I haven't integrated with them firsthand either. Now on the topic of like other SaaS apps that you might be using or tooling, uh, what about for things like exception handling or getting reports on errors? Do you use Sentry or something else? No, we use Logly. Like, but you're using more Datadog, as I said, because on Datadog, we also have a, a way to send custom events to Datadog. So we have monitors on top of custom events. So we use, we use Datadog for this and use Logly. Logly is kind of a combination of a log tool and also an alert tool because you can create some alerts based on your logs as well. So we use like these two, these two tools in combination, but who is really going to send alerts for us is more Datadog. But Logly, like if a client say, oh, this is happening on my app and I believe it's a problem in your proxy layer, probably are going to look in Logly and you're going to see like how these requests are coming, like if you have any errors there. So Log is like our source of truth for like to understand what's going on. And Datadog is a way that you can receive requests if you know that something is wrong. But you don't use like Sentry or other tools like this for the diagnostic purpose, like you can see track trace. Like in Logly you can, but we don't use the other tool that goes beyond that. Okay. And do you find like with all these different logs being created, do you kind of just only react to them when something happens, like an error or something like that versus just going in there and looking at them for the heck of it? Yeah, we as you have monitors for almost every error that can happen, so we don't look to the logs like all the time, but it, sometimes you can receive alerts from Logly if the number of logs in general are increasing. Like, as I said, when you had like some DOS attacks, usually like the logs are going to increase a lot because are going, the apps are going to start to be down, a specific app. So we are going to receive a lot of errors from the app. So that can start to increase our logs. So you check what's going on and usually you can identify very easily what's going on there. But just in this case, because in the other cases, we, we are received the, the monitors from Datadog. So when I say we have monitors for everything, I, I'm saying like for everything. I think we have more than 400 monitors right now. Oh, wow. Yeah, I guess in that case though, it's like the more the merrier because it's like, if you don't add a specific monitor and something happens, you never really know what's going wrong and knowing what's wrong isn't really important. Yeah, but in our case, like as we have a lot of users, that's good and that's bad. Like if anything is wrong, even if you release a new UI that has a type on it, usually like we receive this feedback like in the first hours. Like you don't have much room for error here. Like usually when we release something that's wrong, so people are going to realize really fast that something is not working. And we, we try to create these monitors in advance as well. But of course, when we release, for example, again, the auto-scaling feature with triggers, we are monitoring for like maybe one month. Every day we are looking there and try to understand if it was working as we are expecting. And usually what you do when you develop a new feature, you put a lot of, a lot of logs there. 
And after like two or three months, we removed the logs that are just info logs. So that's what you did for, for the triggers. We had a lot of logs, so you could analyze for the first weeks. And then later you just remove the logs that are just like a lot of logs and it was hard to follow, but it was important just in the first, first, first weeks because our app, our features in general, if they are working correctly for the first weeks, they're going to work in the same way, you know, because like triggers to scale up containers, like they're going to scale up containers in the same way forever. So you don't need to monitor the logs like all the time. And, but, but you have like the errors threshold. So if the log of errors are increasing, so we receive the alerts. And so you can, you can see what's going on. Right. Did you ever find you or your team getting in like not trouble, but like being overloaded by too many notifications, like coming through Slack or like email or maybe text messages? Cause sometimes it's really hard to get, you know, you get lost in the noise where it's like, well, is this like a 404 or is this like a real problem? Like the whole entire platform is down. Yeah. We had a problem, I think was last month or two months ago. And I think it was the, the worst problem that it had uh, since the acquisition, but it just affected one or two clients. And uh, it was because we had a, 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 our registry on the Docker side. It was using a certificate that was created by the previous team with five years expiration. And I don't know why we didn't have a, a monitor for this specific certificate. So when the certificate expired, like our apps are not able to fetch the images anymore. So people start to send messages to us like, oh, our deploy is failing. And also we start to receive like some monitors like about this. So it was, it, it's always like hard in the beginning to understand what's really happening because we have different information from different people. But usually like you try to focus on the pager dirty alert because that's also a nice practice that you have. When you write these monitors on Datadog, I don't know if you're familiar how you have this monitor, but you have a a field that that's called description. So in the description of your monitor, we try to teach ourselves what can be wrong, going wrong. Like if I create a monitor for the triggers, I'm going to explain, oh, if this is happening, probably this is the root cause, probably this is failing, or probably this is happening. So we try to teach ourselves because we know when you receive an alert, maybe you are like in a rush and you want to solve as fast as possible. So we try to anticipate what are the possible problems and we include this information already in the monitor description. So you can analyze better. In some cases you have like, oh, if you receive this monitor, go to Logly and look for this specific type of log. So you can just copy paste the query to Logly and you can see what's going on. So I think this is a, is a nice idea to, to try to prevent a lot of like anxiety when you are going to receive this, receiving these messages. Yeah, that's definitely an awesome idea for sure, because it's so much better than having to go back to like the company handbook or like some checklist where it's like, well, when this happens, then you run this command or this, you know, it's so nice just to have the context right there for the specific error. Yeah, this is really good. Yeah, even especially like uh, a very clear instruction, like you go to Logly and copy and paste this query so you can see if this is really there. So I think this is really, really helpful for us. Right. You also mentioned something interesting there too about like, you know, this Docker registry certificate error, it only happened like five years later. So it, it's kind of funny where, you know, as a software developer, you might be thinking like, well, okay, code's been up and running in production for five days. No errors yet. It must be pretty safe. But then, you know, something pops up maybe two weeks later, like some random scheduling thing that you didn't account for. But it's like now five years out, it's like half a decade. It's like, that's just proof that like you're never safe. Like there's always going to be something out there that you maybe didn't account for. Yeah. And in this case, we have the acquisition, right? So we are not the same team. So I don't know why they didn't have a monitor for that. And I'm not blaming them because, oh, we could have a review and maybe we could find that the certificate was there. 
so now we have a monitor for this but it was probably like the guy that implemented this like five years ago they just forget to create a monitor and that was it then meteor was acquired we start to 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 keep this business running but after that after we had this instant we reanalyze everything again to like do we have another certificate that's going to expire like in six years but it, like that was a, a lesson learned but it's kind of hard to to understand what you don't know right we didn't know like this certificate was there but we tried to review as much as possible read all the documents again try to find some place and we also put a lot of new monitors in place for this as well yeah yeah it's definitely good to hear for sure now, maybe we can talk a little bit about just your overall hosting setup. So you mentioned you are using AWS. Was this before your time, like figuring out like, oh, should we use AWS or GCP or something else? Like, do you know why AWS was chosen? Yeah, I believe like Galaxy was started like seven years ago. So I believe at this time, maybe AWS was way ahead of the competitors. And I, I remember that in the migration process, because when Meteor was acquired, you had a bunch of calls with the previous team, of course, to support us in the, in the transition. So they explained to me, like, they try some things that are not mature yet. I, I don't know exactly if they try, like, Google Cloud, but I know they try other options, and they decided to AWS because it was more mature. I, I remember they said they tried some, like, frameworks and some new stuff in the Go side, in the, like, in the infrastructure side, and they are changing a lot because they are not stable yet. So, like, oh, I need to write all this code again, and I'm just trying to release my hosting platform. So I think the choice was like, oh, this is really stable. They have stable APIs. They are not going to change. They know what they are doing. I think that was more the direction. And to be honest, in my career, I basically use AWS all my life. I already use a little bit Google Cloud and other clouds, but for me, AWS is my, my first goal. So I think I would have done the same choice. And we are really happy about it. Like we have some calls with AWS, like almost every month to discuss new ideas and how we can improve. So we are happy as a client. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. Yeah, I definitely have no nothing against AWS. I like them as well. I was just curious because it's always fun to see like the why, not so much like the how. For the how part, or maybe I guess maybe this is technically another why one, when it came to choosing ECS, was that just because uh, their managed Kubernetes wasn't available or like you just figured you just had experience maybe using ECS before? Yeah, Kubernetes was not ready at this time. We are thinking about, but we even discussed this with the AWS architects, but the benefits of migrating now are not very clear. Like, I, I'm not sure if that would be like a good move for us, but the Kubernetes were like in the, in the first versions and Kubernetes was one of the, the, the technologies that were changing a lot. I remember this in the, in the calls. The guy said, oh, we tried Kubernetes, but it was changing the API all the time. So we are wasting a lot of time. So we decided to not use it. So I think it was more a matter of timing and then a choice. It was not ready at the time. But if, uh, we are thinking about that for next year as well. But I'm not sure, like, because our setup right now with ECS is working really good. So we are not sure if you need to move. Like, I would like to, I don't like the technology by the technology. I like to like, oh, I'm going to migrate to this other technology because I see this benefit and that's going to me, help me with this and this and that. So I usually am like this. So I'm not going to migrate just because everybody's using it. I'm trying to find a a uh, compelling benefit to to do this migration that's what we are waiting for right yeah in the same way and 100 percent agree there because yeah it's it seems like you know your hosting infrastructure is like probably the most important component of everything like just changing that over to kubernetes just for the heck of it it's like if there's no benefit there that's like yeah definitely uh buyer beware now 
In terms of this ECS setup though, do you want to maybe go over a little bit of how it's set up in terms of like number of nodes you have in the cluster? Like, do you have special servers set up that are like, you know, the CPU optimized ones for certain types of different workloads? Yeah, one, one thing that we, I didn't mention like very clear is that we have a few regions. So we have like three regions. We run on uh, Virginia. We also run on other cluster on Ireland and we also run other clusters on Singapore. Oh, sorry, Sydney. So we have like these three regions that we are running on AWS. So they have different loads. So they have different server size. I don't remember right now all the size, but I would say like in Virginia, we probably run like more than 50 servers all the time or 60 servers. But as we have out scaling, like this changes a lot. Like maybe in the weekends, you are running less servers, but in the like, usually Tuesday is a very busy day. I have no idea why, but usually in Tuesday, you are running a lot of servers. So it's changed over time. So it's not like very stable, but usually we have this, the services running around like 60 server on Virginia and they are like huge servers, like, but you have different loadings, as you said, like for the private cluster, we work with the client to optimize for the usage. So maybe for a specific client, it's better to have like 32 gigabytes uh, memory in the server for other clients, it's better to have like 128 gigabytes. So it depends. And we also choose for the, we have two kinds of public cluster. We call, it's not public, in, but it's like public in the way that you can deploy with a few clicks, but you can, you have two kinds of public clusters. We have one that you call a uh, white label protected, that that's you whitelist protected. What means is that when you send requests, they're always going to go with the same APIs. And that's helpful when you want to have like a whitelist in your MongoDB, for example. So you know the requests are going to always come from the same IP, so you can have a whitelist in your MongoDB side. And we have the other cluster that you don't have this uh, same outgoing IPs. The outgoing IPs are always changing. So I have these two class of cluster plus the private clusters. And inside these clusters, we try to identify the best machine size for each one. So we do have, but you don't have like a different machine for each app because that would make no sense. But you have like different machines for different type of clusters. Aha. Yeah, that's that's really cool that you brought that up because that really is a valuable feature to have because I definitely have done client work in the past where their web app needed to interface with a third-party API service, but that third-party API service only allowed connections from a specific IP address or range of IPs. And yeah, if you had no way to like get a static IP on a cluster, then like technically you couldn't even use the cluster. So it's cool that you've uh, worked around being able to do that. Is that just like an ECS feature, I guess? You can just apply like a static IP to a node? It's a AWS feature, like the network layer. It's called Net Gateway. So you can yes. put a Net Gateway on in the front of your request. So all the requests are going to this Net Gateway. And so you have the list of IPs in this Net Gateway. So that's the way it works. But the problem, it's not a problem because it's like a feature from AWS, but they charge more if you're using a Net Gateway. So that's why you have different plans and we are not offering this to everybody because the gigabyte cost is larger if you are using a net gateway. Yeah, I remember net gateways now. I remember getting a bill from AWS for like $33.92 or something like that because I just had an, an unused net gateway just sitting there on the Virginia like US East one. And yeah, just doing there nothing, just existing costed <laughs> like 33 bucks a month. Yeah, and, and they charge per gigabyte. So like with our traffic, we spend a lot of money on network. Yeah, I can imagine that. It must be pretty interesting server cost for you. But also, you're still in business. 
all these years later, so it must be pretty profitable. You don't need to get into the numbers if you don't want. Yeah, we. But are we dealing like yeah? Yeah, we are. We are profitable. We don't share like the numbers, but we are a profitable company. And you can imagine that if you read the Tiny website, like Tiny is a capital company. I don't know if you know Tiny, but it's pretty popular nowadays. And we buy a lot of companies on Tiny. And so Tiny just acquired like profitable business. So you can guess that we are profitable because we have we, Tiny acquired Meacher. And it was, but Meacher, we are just talking here about like the business side, like the service side. But you also have the open source side that is a big component of Meacher. I think it's even bigger than what you're talking about here. So like the profit for us is really important because we also need to invest in the open source side. We need to, to engage with the community. We need to have people working the features that are important for the community. So that's another side that's not like so related to running production, like our talk here, but it's also important. So we need to, to have a profitable business to keep the whole ecosystem work, you know? So we need to have money in the, in the service side to be able to provide for the open source side. And in the same way, the open source side needs to be strong so we have more people deploying apps to the service side. So it's a it's a good cycle between these two kind of they are like two business but inside the same business. Right. Yeah, that's very nice to hear. It's not just like the profit from the hosting isn't for them to buy like their third mansion and like their fifth yacht. It's actually to like improve the open source solution as well. Yeah, and, and it's a nice relationship because I think this is is really nice about this business, and that's why I joined after trying acquisition, because like they can benefit each other, you know. Like if the open source starts to grow a lot, of course, some people are going to deploy with us. Other people are going to deploy to other solutions and that's fine. We are not against different solutions. So we have our space in the market and you can grow together. Like you can grow the service and you can grow the open source and it's win-win. I, I don't see any way that's a conflict, you know, it's kind of the opposite. They are contributing for the same goal. That is to have like a strong community for Meteor and a strong community means that you have a lot of great apps in production. Because if you have just like a lot of apps for people that are learning, that are studying, it's okay. It's a good starting point, but it's not enough to keep a business running for like 10 years as Meteor is running for almost 10 years already. Yeah, no, it sounds like you have uh, basically like the perfect combo there. Now, earlier you did mention you are using Terraform here. Do you want to maybe go over just briefly a little bit like how Terraform is managing all of your infrastructure or is it even managing all of it? Like is all of your AWS stuff in Terraform? Yes, basically everything. I'm trying to think here if there is any component that is not there, but I don't think so. Like the only part that Terraform is not managing because we are managing ourselves is the part that I explained about the scheduler. So Terraform is not managing what happens inside the cluster and the machine is inside the cluster because our scheduler is doing it, but everything else is managed by Terraform. Even these monitors that I said about Datadog, as you have like 400 monitors, uh, like we are not managing them manually on Datadog. We are managing just in the Terraform template. So you apply these templates to create monitors. So basically everything that I explained here, like the out balance, the configuration with like MongoDB connections and all the connections with like Elastic Cache, uh, DynamoDB, everything is using Terraform. Like we don't do anything like by hand. We don't go to AWS console to make changes. We just use AWS UI to basically see things and try to monitor, but you'd never go there to change something. It's 100% on Terraform. I don't know even how to explain that because it's just like everything. <laughs> no, I'm really happy that you brought up that even the monitors for Datadog is inside the Terraform config because 
yeah, that's one of those things where it's like, well, you could have just went into Datadog's web UI and clicked around and like, here's your 400 monitors, but like the monitors are part of your infrastructure. So it's actually super cool to see Terraform has a provider for that as well. Cause I actually didn't use that one firsthand, but now that's like the next thing on my to-do list. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and you need to remember that I said we have multiple regions. So like every change, and we also have a staging re region where you apply some tests. So every change that we do, like you need to do using Terraform because after you do the first time and it's working on staging, and when you decide to go to production, you need to apply for multiple environments and you have the private clusters and you have a lot of stuff. So we even have scripts to copy the configurations from one region to a different region because it's a lot of work if you're going to do this manually. Using Terraform, and it would be impossible to do it manually, like clicking around. So we need to automatize because you have like many regions and many clusters to, to support. So it's, it would be impossible without a, a tool like Terraform. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember first working with AWS, like setting up all the networking stuff and VPC stuff by hand, just clicking around. And it was like, I think I ended up with like, like 35 or something bullet points written down of like the steps I had to take. Like, I can't imagine life now without using Terraform. <laughs> it, it would be very hard, even for something small. I'm curious, by the way, what the MongoDB setup, do you actually have MongoDB running in a self-managed way or do you use one of AWS's managed services or something else? No, we use something else. You, they are running on AWS, but use a provider that's called ScaleGrid. We have used, you have migrated to ScaleGrid after, I think we're using Emilab. Emilab was acquired by MongoDB Atlas, and so we had to migrate from Emilab. And at the time, we were analyzing like MongoDB Atlas and ScaleGrid. And in the end, we decided to go with ScaleGrid. And we don't regret, like we, they have like a great support team. And as they are, I think, smaller than like MongoDB Atlas, I, I even talk to the founder sometimes. So we have a direct connection with them. So it's great. Like we're going to have a hackathon uh, in November now, if you want to, to spread this news to your audience as well. We have like money prize with building with Meteor and like scale grid is going to, to sponsor this hackathon as well. The winners are going to, to have a, a re really good discount on hosting with them. So I think scale grid is a, is a really nice solution and they don't have just MongoDB. They have like other databases there, but you are just using MongoDB with them, but you are really happy. Like they run our service on AWS. So we are basically in the same setup that we are used to, but you don't need to manage MongoDB. You don't need to manage the backups and anything. Oh, nice. Does that also mean like you have a local network connection then to MongoDB or no? Yeah, right now, I, I don't think like our clients, some clients, they are using VPC peering. I don't think you are using VPC peering for ourselves because it was not a like a need, but you have like certificates and everything set up to, to have the, the right security level there. But I don't think we have VPC peering right now. But we have we we offer this for clients. Like if you are a private uh, a client with a private cluster, like an enterprise client, we can create VPC peering for you, so you connect using the internal network. Very cool. Now, on the topic of security, how do how do folks who are using your platform uh, set things like you know Stripe API keys or just anything that would be considered a secret? Yeah, it's it's more like uh, the open source side than like, of course, in the host, we also use the keys, but Meteor has a, a file that's called a settings file. So you can provide a lot of stuff there. And this, you have two sections in this file. You have like the, the, the main part of the file that's going to be owning the server, so it's private. And you have a special key, it's a JSON file. So you have a special key that's called public. And everything you go to public, it's going to be published to the client. So like basically this special file it's going to, when you run Meteor deploy, it's going with your deploy. 
and you can decide as a client if you want to go to want to expose this in the UI so your users can edit because you have a feature where you can change the settings in the UI so you don't need to make a new deploy just to see, change the settings or if you want to hide this so it's like nobody can see it even your users so that's basically how they manage keys but it's more like a featuring meter than a feature in Galaxy itself but it's the way that you you have to do it okay so then as an end user, you're just modifying the content of that file. Like you don't even need to go to the Galaxy's backend in like a settings area and add like an environment variable? Yeah, no, because like one special field inside this, uh, this JSON is called like env and it's inside a key that's called Galaxy. So you can, when Meteor see these env tools, it's kind of exports the, the environment variables for you. So it's kind of a, a nice way for you to expose your variables there. So Meteor is doing this work during the build process. So that's why it's more like a Meteor feature than like a Meteor cloud feature. Ah, nice. So maybe now we can switch gears a little bit and just talk a little bit more about your deployment process. Like, you know, going over deploying some of those Go services or the Meteor backend part for the dashboard. Do you want to walk us through that? For like, you know, even developing like a new feature locally, like how, how does that work? Okay. Yeah, usually like it's, it's, I think it's pretty standard in a way. Like the only part that is a little bit different is like Terraform because when you deploy a new Go code, like you need to generate the binary and apply the Terraform, but it's basically it. And in the Galaxy side, we use you actually Travis CI. So when you have something that is new, we we have special brains that they we run the test first in a like feature brain, and then we merge to a branch that we call like production. And we have a Travis process that's going to be triggered automatically that deploys to, to Galaxy. But it's a very simple process. As I said, like Meteor deploy is very simple. You just run like Meteor deploy and that's it. So, and we are going to improve this. Like in a few weeks, we are going to release the push to deploy. So we are probably going to just deploy using our Go services that are going to be watching our GitHub repo. So that's a new feature that is coming in the next few weeks. So we don't need to have like your own process to deploy. You can just deploy using our services, we are going to enhance what we are offering today. But it's it's very simple. Like you just have these two ways, like or you you commit and then you have the deploy or you, you, you generate the new Go binary and you apply using Terraform. That one is special thing, but it's a very simple thing that you do for the, the Node.js meter part that you have like three apps. I don't, I, maybe I explained that, but you have like the app that the user see we also have the API that is a different app. And we also have the billing that is just a process that runs the billing because we build containers by hour. So it's very complex and everything. So we have this billing app as well. So these apps, they are in the same repo and in the same code, but they have different settings. So we have like a special configuration on Travis. So you put like a hashtag when you want to deploy just one of these components. Like if I'm applying a change just in the UI, I'm not going to make this deploy to go to also the, the API. So we put a hashtag in the commit, like deploy UI. So it's just going to deploy this part. It's kind of a trick for us to, uh, for us to be able to not deploy the three apps all the time. And, uh, and remember, when I say three apps, actually I'm talking about like 12 apps because you have multiple regions. So when you deploy, the deploy goes to all the regions. So everything that we are saying here, you need to multiply by four because we have like four regions in total. So that's that's the process usually. Right. Yeah, it sounds like that hashtag trick is basically a trick so that you can have a mono repo, but still control what you're deploying, right? Yes, that's basically the idea. You can select 
And if you don't put anything, it's going to deploy to to all the, the apps. Did you ever run into a scenario where, you know, someone went to update the billing app, but forgot to put that part into the git commit. So like everything got deployed? Yeah, usually that's not a big problem. Like you just want to avoid deploys that are unnecessary, but it, that happens sometimes, but it's it's not a big problem. Like the it's going to work in the same way. Like you don't have downtimes in our deploys. So in the Metro.js part, you can deploy whatever you want, but you avoid to deploy like in the middle of the day, if you have a lot of users connected, it's not because they are going to be down, but maybe the servers are going to need to reconnect with a lot of information. But usually it's okay to deploy any time of the day. Like our services are pretty reliable to deploys. Right. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. Like we do that too in some certain client sites where technically the site needs to be up all the time. But like why do it during peak times when you can do it off peak and it's like really not an issue for anyone. Still like a risk assessment type of thing. So going back to your deployment process here, like in development or, you know, when that feature branch gets pushed up, do you have things set up to where like at least one developer needs to do a review on someone else's code? Yes, that's our basic rule. Like we need to have one approval on every PR, but when it's a big feature, usually like at least two approvals, but one approval is like standard. Like you need to have in any case, like if it's urgent, like in even this case, like send a message to send a text, try to have someone to at least have a review. Because usually our systems are really critical. Like we can't have like mistakes there because it's going to cause big problems for our clients. So that's the basic rule. And also we have a lot of tests. Like in the goal side, you have a lot of tests. In the meter part, you have a lot of tests. So usually, of course, you need to have the out test needs to be green. And you have this on integrated on GitHub. So before you merge the PR, you can see like the green marks and then you can merge. Otherwise, you can't even merge. Like the UI is going to block you from merging the, the PR. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's definitely a great feature to have for sure. Now, mentioning tests here, it is interesting to hear that, well, of course, it's important that you have a lot of tests, but like something like the scheduler, is that an easy application to test? Or like, do you just end up mocking things out? And like, if you do, like, how are you confident that things are going to work on the real cluster? Yeah, I, I'm not like a, a huge fan of the idea of testing everything. I, I'm more of the idea of just testing what's really important. And that's what you do. But like, of course, the schedule is really important. So we have tests there. But it's as you say, like, it's impossible to be 100% sure like that's going to work with ECS and all the integrations because I can test like with AWS integrated there. But what you can do is to be sure that our logic to create the plans is correct. So we can mock like, okay, this is how ECS is going to respond. And this is the database state. Let's see the plan if the plan makes sense. And I think this is a very nice, helpful test. I call like snapshot, snap, snapshot testing, even when we're not using like the snapshot feature of Jess. I don't know if you know this feature, but the idea is that like maybe you don't know exactly what is the result, but if you see the result, you know the result's right. And then you save this result. And the next time that we run the same test, the result needs to be the same. So you don't need to write a lot of codes, like checking like if this number is equal to this number, but you see the final result is equals the previous final result. So the code is still working as expected. And these tests for me are very helpful. Usually for a complex system, I usually do this kind of test, like comparing the final result instead of trying to check a lot of details along the way. And I think this is very effective. Yeah, I think that's a great way to go about it. Because like, if you do all of those lower level tests, like each individual thing along the way, and then you also do like the end-to-end test where you just check the final result, it's like, 
you're sort of, I don't know what to say, wasting your time, but like a lot of those little like mini steps along the way kind of, you're like, you're retesting the same code path multiple times. And that's kind of just not a good use of time, I guess, right? Yes. And like for the triggers, uh, I'm always using like the triggers because I work in this code myself. Uh, but like the, in the triggers example, we know what can happen, right? Like the CPU could be like more than 50%, less than 50%, equal to 50%. So we can mock all these cases and we know what the trigger should do. Like, oh, in this case, this specific trigger should scale up. In this case, this specific trigger should scale down. I'm not sure if the action to scale down or scale up in the MongoDB, it's going to be saved as I would expect it because I'm not using MongoDB in this test. But I know for sure the outputs, the output that I'm expecting. And if the MongoDB call is failing, I'm going to receive an error call and I'm going to understand why the database is failing because usually that's really simple to, to identify. So I'm really concerned about like the ideas, like how I decide what's the next action and not if the action is going to be persisted in MongoDB because usually this is really easy. And that, if that's not working, it's going to throw an error. So I'm going to receive an email and I can fix it. So I usually am focused more in the in the ideas and how I can test that my ideas are working, then the integrations and the databases and the connections. Right. Yep. That totally makes sense. Now, speaking of like databases and failure modes, maybe we can talk a little bit about just overall how things are backed up, like in case something goes wrong. Like, do you back up your database and like user uploaded files, etc.? Yeah, we have we have a lot of redundancy redundancy everywhere. Like our Go services, we have like a, a machine just waiting and you have a, a leader in place. Like what do you have, for example, for the scheduler? We never have two schedules running in the same time because it makes no sense because one scheduler could make a plan and the other schedule could make a different plan and that would be a mess. So we just have one schedule each time, but we have a leader election that we also use Dynamo to, to know who is the leader. So when we are running like the, the second server is just running there just basically wasting money. <laughs> but why it's there? It's because like the scheduler is really important for us. So if the first scheduler fail, fails for any reason, maybe the machine is bad, like the driver is bad, I don't know. The other scheduler is going to assume in like five seconds. So all the services that we have, they have this idea in mind. So if one fails, the other one is already running. We are not going to even wait for the startup time of the machine. The machine is already there, ready to, to start to work and they can recover the stage and they can start right away. This is for the, the Go part. And for the meter part, like we are meter experts. So like we know how meter application works in general. So I have like multiple containers in, on, on our hosting. If you have like more than three containers, actually if you have three or more containers, we are going to deploy these containers in different availability zones. So our apps we deploy with at least three containers. So they are in different availability zones. In our MongoDB, we also have like the replication with three nodes. So if one node fails, you can still write or read from the other node. And we also have the backups that ScaleGrid does for us. So I we have like a, a good like standard way to to handle like replications and if you have problems, how to recover from the problem. That's awesome to see. And yeah, it's super interesting. Like you brought this up a few times in the episode where you just have things sitting in multiple regions. And like I forget at least like there's a lot of effort to get all of that working and all of that being backed up and replicated. Like you guys built like a really, really nice system. And I'm sure a system that makes AWS happy because you also mentioned that certain things you just keep running, kind of just wasting money. So I guess it's a win-win for you, reliability and AWS. Yeah, for them it's really good. Like, because basically all the services, they are duplicated there. 
But I think for us, we I, I said like wasting money, but it's like investment, right? Because if you start to yeah. have a lot of problems and people, oh, the schedule is not working for like five minutes because in, for some apps, it's very critical to scale up really fast. Imagine that you have like some event apps. So they are running an event and maybe there is a famous speaker that is going live in five minutes. So they need to scale up really fast to be able to accommodate all these people that are coming to watch this live event. So like we need to scale fast. So like any any failure like this for five, 10 minutes can cause a big problem for us. So it's an investment. Like we, are, we know we are like spending money that you're not using the server, but at least if you have a problem, then the other server can assume. And machines like they are is going to fail, right? I think that's the only thing that you know for sure that sometime some machine are going to fail. So you need to be prepared for these cases as well. Right. Now on the topic of like, just like getting big spikes of unexpected traffic, do you have any clients on your platform now where maybe they run some like e-commerce business where they might just do like a sale and then out of nowhere, like your traffic spike goes way up? Because that definitely is a case where, you know, waiting five minutes or 10 minutes for stuff to spin up could be really bad because people are getting errors on like a checkout page. Yeah, we, we, I don't, I think we have a lot of, uh, a lot of e-commerce. I had one e-commerce myself, for example. But I think the biggest case that we have for these like variations, uh, actually we have two. We have a few event apps, as I said, like there is a company that hosts we feel that's called Pathable. They are like, they were acquired like last year, but they are still running the business and they, they have like a lot of huge events. So they have this case where they need to scale up really fast and they have a private cluster with you. So they have a lot of control and also we have the auto scaling feature that they use a lot. So they can scale up, scale down really fast. And the other case that we have that is a little bit more stable, but they also float during the day is the education. Like as Meteor is really good for real-time apps. So we have a lot of education apps built with Meteor so people can interact very easily. So these apps, they usually like in the nights, they don't need almost any containers. But during the day, a lot of kids starts to sign up and they need to, to have more containers available. But before we had like the, the triggers, system people are creating like some bots to kind of scrap the page and try to scale up and down but now that we have the auto scaling feature like with a few clicks you can create a trigger to scale up scale down with a lot of custom rules so it's not a big problem for people anymore so they can just scale up and scale down as they wish and they could do this manually or they can do this using our our ui our sorry our triggers to do automatically for them so i think we are we have a good solution right now for this but we do have a few clients that are using this a lot. So as we charge by hour, it's good for us if they are scaling up because we are going to to, to have more money. And also the auto-scaling feature is good for the clients because they don't need to run a lot of service all the time. And it's very easy to set up. And I do calls with clients like every week. And I'm always asking like, are you using triggers? Because it's a very nice way for you to save money. So because basically, all the business, they are not online like 24 hours, you know, like they are not, people are not buying like 24 hours. People are not watching course 24 hours. So if you understand the load in your server, so you can use triggers to really save a lot of money. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I could see that being very applicable to a ton of different sites. So what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building out this platform? I think the, the I, I already mentioned this, but I think the first one is monitor everything. <laughs> like if you have a very critical application, or even if you have a small application, but it's it's always important, right? If somebody is using it, it's because it's important for them. So I think this idea of like, I think that is a nice way on Datadog that you can monitor like for no data. So let's see, let's suppose again the triggers. 
Like if I know the trigger should be running every minute, I can put a monitor on Datadog that if this specific event is not happening for like two minutes, I want a pager that call. So that's a very nice way because there is no error, but the trigger is not running. So you need to be aware that something is not happening because that's some case it's very hard because you don't have an error. Like you're not going to receive a call of an error, but you can receive a call for no data. So I think that's a nice way to monitor that you use a lot. So if you know something should be happening like every X seconds, so you have a monitor there that is, if there is no data for X seconds, it's going to give us a call. So I think that's the first trick is to like, the first tip is to monitor everything in that specific way, it's very helpful. And I think the second one is like, no, avoid over-optimization. Like I, I am really into this idea that optimization ahead of time is really bad. Like if you, if you can wait, like we are going to release this feature, uh, this new feature that's called push to deploy. First, we are starting to use ourselves like this week. Later, we are going to have some beta clients but you're not going to over-optimize. Like you could have already, oh, let's put auto-scaling this component, let's do this, let's do that. But you don't know if this is going to be a hit or not. So don't over-optimize, like let's have a beta so you can expand your clients slowly. And because over-optimization for me is like the biggest waste that you have in our area. Like usually people in tech, they want to have the fastest, the biggest, the everything that is the greatest. But it's not necessary many times. So wait a little bit, see how the clients are going to react. I'm not going to be to commit mistakes by purpose. Like, oh, I'm going to do this and I know this is really bad. That's not the point. But avoid it to over-optimize. Like if you're not sure that's really necessary, maybe you could release without it and you can wait a little bit to see what's going on. Or you have some temporary measure that you can do manually to understand what is going on. So I think that that are my two advice. Yeah, those are definitely, definitely great tips. Yeah, both of them are great. But the last one, yeah, it's super easy just to like never end up shipping something because you're always like, but this thing and that thing, but what about that? But then, you know, you're know, you like a year later and it's like, it's still not launched. You can definitely get yourself in trouble in that way if you don't hold back on things until it's necessary. So really appreciate those tips. So Felipe, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thank you, Nick. It was really nice. Your questions were really good. And I hope everybody enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I'm happy to hear that you had a great time. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Yeah, my Twitter is my name, Philippe Nevola. It's F-L-I-P-E-N-E-V-O-L-A, but you have having the notes here. And also I have a, a platform that I'm building to teach people like usually how to create an app. Uh, I'm using Meteor in, in the videos, but like you are going to learn about JavaScript algorithms and everything because I really love like code and I like, I like to teach how to code. So the project name is how to create an app.dev. So you can check the website, you can sign up and we're going to add a lot of content there. So it's a nice way for me to also contribute for the community and try to help people that are, that are wishing to learn how to code. Awesome. And yeah, I love that domain name. It's like literally like exactly what you would Google for, kind of. Like, how do I build an app? <laughs> yeah, that was the idea. I was trying to find some words that people are looking for when they are starting an app. So that's why I bought this domain. Cool. So yeah, I'll make sure to drop all those links in the show notes. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.